0: Welcome to She Is Your Neighbour, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna May. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbour, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called The Need for Peer Support with Sophia Aresta. As a survivor of domestic violence, Sophia saw a need for more peer support services in Waterloo Region to prevent domestic violence tragedies from happening. In this episode, Sophia explains how her stay at Women's Crisis Services Emergency Shelter in Selma House led her to explore various support services within the region. She explains how her personal experience with abuse inspired her to co-found Voices Waterloo Region, a peer support group for survivors of intimate partner violence. This episode is part of our six-episode series called Understanding Femicide, which explores what happens when domestic violence and stalking become lethal. I really enjoyed speaking with Sophia for this episode. We actually got connected with her last season when she reached out and said she had an interest in participating in a podcast episode. So I was really looking forward to getting to know her and getting to chat with her more and learning more about her journey. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this series. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for joining me here today.
1: Hi, Jenna. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's great to have you here. I'm really excited to talk today and glad we could get together and make this work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I am uh, honored to be a part of this, actually.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And uh, I was hoping maybe you could just start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Sophia Aresta. I am the very biased mother of <laughs> two of the world's greatest people. <laughs> Um I am also, I know you guys can't see, but Jenna, I know you can see behind me. I am an iguana mama as well. So I have a very oversized reptile cage. You might, maybe she'll make an appearance for you, Jenna. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> in the background. So don't let that throw you off. Um I also am an IPV survivor, so intimate partner violence survivor. Uh we very much stress the term "survivor" versus "victim," um, and the co-chair of our Waterloo Region Peer Support Group called Voices.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much for being here again today, and love the iguana. I've got cats here at home. Um, I'm also a pet lover. No iguanas, but I do got some cats.
1: <laughs> it's a rare, it's a rare pet to have. We have a lot of allergies, so we went the reptilian, scaly route.
0: <laughs> That's cool. I love it. And so you had mentioned when you are speaking there uh, about the Voices group that you run locally here. So I was wondering if you could start off by talking a little bit more about Voices.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for asking. So we are Voices Waterloo Region or our handle online. We do have a Facebook and an Instagram page Is Voices WR for Waterloo Region. We are the only advocacy group that is made of survivors itself. We currently have a monthly drop in group. It's actually the last Thursday of every month, and that's through Horizon. So, this is a peer support group. We do live in a region that has a lot of excellent community supports and services. However, this one, Voices specifically, is the only one that is peer, P-E-E-R, peer support, as well as made up of survivors
0: ourselves. Great, thank you. And I know that you helped found the group. Could you share a bit about why you decided to found this group?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I took a very educational approach to learning about intimate partner violence and femicide or domestic violence, When I had learned about how severe the circumstance I was in, um, I was completely oblivious. I had no idea. When I had learned about it, um, like I said, I took a very educational approach. So I was in a circumstance where I did end up residing uh, for two months in one of our local shelters for women escaping violence. And so I decided to take advantage of the services that were offered there. Through that and through a lot of more community groups, mostly through Horizon, I was able to become very knowledgeable about it. It helped me a lot with my personal healing journey. Being able to admit to myself that I was a victim in the first place was huge, but to be able to move from victim to survivor, I was kind of like, what's next? What's after that? And for me, I believe wholeheartedly that the full circle from victim to survivor to advocate is is the full circle itself. So this is very near and dear to my heart. And and selfishly speaking, I wanted to learn these things and my part in them as well to ensure that it didn't happen again to me and that I set a better example for my children, hence setting a better example for our community.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think something that you said there really stuck out to me. It's that you were kind of completely oblivious in the beginning. You didn't recognize that you were experiencing intimate partner violence at the time. And that's something I've heard before from women and from survivors is that they didn't know what to label it. You know, they knew their relationship maybe wasn't going well, or there are things about their partner that didn't seem right, but they didn't know what to call it maybe if you're comfortable, would you share a little bit more about what it was like to kind of put a name to this?
1: You know, my eye-opening experience was when we had our local Waterloo Regional Police Service, we had a couple constables show up and they, they split you up, just give some space, right? Um, and so one was speaking to me, me and then one was speaking to uh, my abuser. Um, and so it was really interesting um, towards the end of it, it was the officer that was speaking to my abuser had suggested to provide the number for women's crisis to me. And the constable that was speaking to me was seemed surprised. Like, really? Like, after speaking to me, I guess, like, really? There's nothing really abusive going on here to him because that's what <laughs> was, I was explaining. Um, that's all he had to go on. And, but the one that was dealing uh, with the abuser... Um, was like, oh yeah, definitely. Provide her the number for Women's Crisis, um, and and it really just, I, I am very thankful to that that constable and and, and that moment because it was very eye opening to me. Even even when I was residing in a shelter, I was still questioning. Like I still, and this is what years of conditioning does. There's very much a tactical thing at play here. And they're really, when I saw the cycle of abuse, when I saw things on black and white and paper in front of me, and that's what I mean about taking an educational approach to it. I was learning these things. I was very open to learning them for myself. And like I said, to set a better example for my children and, and and then they are members of the community. So then the community, um, it was extremely eye-opening to me when I saw these items written down on paper, And the cycle of abuse, when I could actually check off, oh, this this applies, this applies, this applies, this applies. For myself personally, the abuse was less physical, and so it was harder to identify. There was some physical stuff in it, and it definitely was heading in that direction, without a doubt. But again, it's so easy to miss when you're in it. And and one of our goals, actually, the advocacy group is, is plastering the definition of abuse out there. I think knowing the definition and learning what that is and putting a language to what has occurred is very important. That way you're able to identify and you're able to successfully get out of a situation.
0: I think so too. And- like you said, with the police officers, sometimes even for friends and family, it's easier to identify what's going on in someone else's life. You might notice some of the the signs and the red flags, but in our own lives, it can be really hard to pick up on. So I think when you have the language to use and you, you think about the definition and, and what abuse is, um, it can really help you start to think through what you're experiencing and, and see if it kind of ticks that box.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we think that it really should be included in every community building, doctor's offices. I even had a, a family practitioner ask me once and, and the way it was asked to me was immediately dismissed in their question. Like they were like, you're, are you, no, no, you're not experiencing any domestic abuse because they knew my abuser as well. It was the family practitioner for everyone. But there was a reason that she was thinking of asking that question to begin with, right? But she even said no right away, even though she's not, living in the the same four walls or under the same roof, right? So it's very easy to dismiss. It's very easy to miss. And something even that I was taught. So I, I also volunteered with our local victim services as a crisis responder. We were taught about biases. And one of the main things was returning, you know, our police will get the same calls for a domestic violence and return to the same location multiple times. And they said, you know, really letting go of your bias. You know, why is this person staying with them? Why is this person... We can see what's happening. We can see a mark or, you know, when it is physical and it's more obvious. Letting go of that bias is is very much something that I think is important as well, because it's very easy to judge something that you're not in or not experiencing. We know now there's a lot of percentages and there's lots of research done now that if there is violence or or any sort of abuse in a childhood, we know that it's going to be something that will return in that person's life. And there could be a lot of shame attached to that. And I personally experienced a lot of shame. And I remember celebrating with my therapist when I graduated from shame to just guilt. Like (laughs) that was, you know, we're getting to where we're going in the right direction. Um, And it it is something I'm proud of still, um, is graduating from that shame to that guilt. Um, We know that there's a neurobiological impact of trauma now as well. I was extremely um, fortunate to be able to partake in um, a training called The Neurobiology of Trauma by Dr. Lori Haskell. If you ever get the chance to take it, I highly, highly recommend it. And it was definitely above, I, I, I had to Google some words, <laughs> some terms because she's <laughs> has an extensive education and is, is a doctor, psychiatrist herself. Um, but it was so incredible for my own personal healing journey to learn about the neurobiology of trauma um, and to be able to graduate from that shame to guilt and then move on and continue that uphill positive uh, slope, right?
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting, the graduating from shame to guilt. And it speaks to the psychological abuse, I think, that can happen in these relationships. And you had mentioned, you know, maybe there wasn't as much physical abuse at the beginning. um, And it was likely going to head that way because we know that violence does tend to escalate. And that brings me to something else I want to ask you. We know when violence does escalate, you know, it can become physical and sometimes it can even become fatal, unfortunately. We know that throughout the pandemic, there's been a rise in femicides and domestic homicides. Yes, massively. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious through your work and, and through your life, I'm, I'm curious to know how femicide has impacted you.
1: It's a really good question. Uh, it's an unfortunate one to have to ask, but it needs to be asked. And I appreciate that you do that. I know that through a lot of my what I call my education or what other people would call therapies and through my volunteer work I have been fortunate to learn a lot of of the actual percentages And the increase of femicide, the increase of intimate partner violence has been huge, hugely increased. Even though we have some resources available, even though, you know, in comparison to just the decade I was born in the 80s, in comparison to now, we have shelters and we have things and and supports put in place. But it's still that uh, that percentage still increases. So, you know, more needs to be done. Specifically to answer your question, I know that it does take the success rate of leaving an intimate partner violent situation that can always, it can always lead to femicide um, is it takes seven times to successfully leave. And this is only the rate of people that are alive to speak to it. That seven times is those, those times that it was a success and people are, again, alive to speak to it so that's huge to know that it can take seven times is is very big deal um and and can also tie in with letting go of your biases right we also know that when successfully leaving that can be and is the most dangerous time to leave uh, the most dangerous time for the victim or for the survivor so that's where safety planning comes into play, and that's something that I do with members of the community uh, through victim services. Can be done with members of the community is safety planning to plan a safe exit and not become a statistic of femicide. I've had um, heard of experiences with you know other members, uh, voices, or members of the community where. There's one in particular that, of course, without sharing identities and, and, and anything like that and keeping confidentiality, there's one particularly that, that this specific survivor had learned that their abuser in a previous relationship, their previous partner had gone missing and then had been found to be deceased. The uh, Body was found and it was questionable. You know, there was, there was questions as to, you know, this was not a, a natural death. And there's many examples of, of things like that right here in our community.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so unfortunate to hear, but it's so true. Femicide is close to us and and it is happening in our community here. And that's that's really awful to hear about the group member that found this out, I can imagine that would be really traumatic to hear and to process as you're going through your own journey. And is that something that Voices, the group, can help with? Is is people who are impacted by domestic violence or whether they're touched by femicide or or know someone who unfortunately was a victim of femicide, is that something that Voices can help these survivors process and work through? What I always
1: recommend, so at our monthly drop-ins, I always recommend letting people know that we do have great resources available, but we are the only ones that have a peer support and we can speak to our, I know our other co-chair, she always says that there's almost an unspoken language. There's things that we can express to each other and we just get it. We just get it. We don't have to go through the the ones closest to us and love us the most sometimes are the ones that don't understand the most because they're like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, why can't you just do this? Why can't you just do this? But there's so much more to it that you don't have to go through that when you're expressing your experiences and definitely being able to share, you know, safety planning pointers to each other successful circumstances with each other. You know, this is what I went through dealing with legal aid, or this is what I went through dealing with FNCS, Family Children's Services, but there is such a monumental opportunity to improve these services. Um, Huge. And one, and one thing that voice is really, we're very passionate about um, is trying to improve the services that are already there. So It's easy to look at a situation and just say, "I'll just get a restraining order or "or no contact order or, or just do this. But if you have an abuser who doesn't abide by those things and we have systems that don't hold abusers accountable, it's very difficult. When you have financial abuse that was extremely prevalent in my circumstance, you don't have the resources and the financial ability to be able to then follow through with these items. So, you know, I picture it in a perfect world, an IPV specialist, you know, an IPV specialist working with the family children services worker, an IPV specialist working with the legal aid lawyer, working with the Waterloo Regional Police Service, when applicable, working with the judge even, somebody who understands what it is like to go through it, who's been trauma-informed, the trainings, who has the ability to see IPV from a mile away that can lead to femicide, once you see it, it is so clear. You have to remind yourself to practice self-compassion because once you see it, I go, what was I doing? Why was this not clear to me before? Like, why was I thinking, what was I doing? But, you know, you become a different person when you become more aware. And that's a good thing that now I, I'm like, what was <laughs> going on in your head, girl? But, you know, that's not a bad thing because point is, is once you see it, it's so clear you can literally see it from a mile away. You can be parked at, you know, at a, a stoplight and looking over and being like, oh my goodness, you can see it in a neighbor. You can see it in the community. And it's so important, I think, for us to, to not be afraid to speak up and to reach out to individuals that we are worried about. Even if we have an inkling, you know, I'm not, I always say I'm not in the business of creating victims. That's not the point. The point is to be able to provide some support, even if it's just, hey, I'm an example of somebody who didn't know, got out of the situation, and I'm excelling, you know, as an advocate. Even if that's the support being brought, I think that living that example and and having that shown to people who feel stuck, because you really do, you feel stuck in the situation. You don't feel like there is an out, because again, years of conditioning, this this can happen to anyone, right? This this is nobody's off the table here. So so seeing that and, and being aware of it, I think is is huge. And having the rest of the community aware that this is something that happens in your community all the time, all the time. And again, those rates are just increasing and increasing. And a lot of people don't know of our community supports. They don't know victim services. They don't know um, of these items, and they're scared to access it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think awareness is so key. It's so crucial in order to prevent these tragedies from happening, right? We don't want to see any more femicides. And unfortunately, the rates are going up and we need to to talk about how we can prevent it. I know you mentioned some really great community services we have there in addition to the Voices group. And I also just want to mention that here at at Women's Crisis Services, we have a variety of services as well for women and children experiencing domestic violence uh, we have a group called Neighbors and Loved Ones where uh, neighbors or concerned family members can go and learn about domestic violence and and learn the signs and how they might be able to um, kindly and appropriately and safely speak to someone who they think might be experiencing this. So there is there is lots of community support, but I think we do need to talk about it more. And we we need to talk about femicide and the fact that it's happening and that that this is actually the risk, right? Um, yes. Because I, I don't think people always link it. You know, there's domestic violence and there's abuse, but, but the, the worst thing is that someone doesn't actually make it through that situation, right? Yeah.
1: It's mind boggling to me that this is something that even as a survivor, <laughs> as an advocate, it, it's mind boggling to me that this is something um, that is so prevalent in our community in 2022. It, it just blows my mind. Our, you know, our Waterloo Regional Police Service, they are the first, po- first police force in our province to actually have an IPV department, intimate partner violence. And they speak about how many deaths are from femicide as well. So just being able to have put together um, that dialogue and, and the ability to, you know, see how many deaths are actually because of that is, is a sign that there is a lot of hope and, you know, with the monumental room of improvement.
0: <laughs> I agree. And I think talking about those stats that you mentioned that police have and that we can find in different places, it's it's interesting because it, it highlights the problem. But sometimes there are things and, and they're not classified a femicide because they really aren't, but they're close to it, such as perhaps someone unfortunately dying by suicide who was in an abusive relationship. That's not technically yes. a, a femicide, but...
1: Yeah, that's a good example. The things that are reported, I always say, you know, that's the ones that we know, of, right? Like anything. So those are just the ones that were reported and had um, some sort of a, a paper trail to follow to be able to classify, right? Either way, I always say abuse is abuse is abuse, and it should never be allowed.
0: I agree. I think it's just such an important conversation that we need to have and keep having. And those are all great reasons why why you're interested in this work and why we need to keep having these conversations. And one final question I want to ask you is part of this project, the She Is Your Neighbor project, is thinking about how we can all be better neighbors and supports to those who are, who are going through this. Um, could you tell us what you think we need to do to all be better neighbors to women and children experiencing this?
1: Absolutely. Um, a lot of people may witness things and think, oh, you know what? It doesn't involve me. It doesn't impact my life. They might witness things and say, oh, that's a cultural difference. They might witness things. And and there's many reasons to not get involved. I don't have time. I'm running late for work, whatever it is. A lot of people also don't know that if there's not an immediate 911 emergency, they can report things to our local Waterloo Regional Police Service or to their local police service by calling the non emergency line. And that's as easy as Googling the phone number. If you see something that you are concerned about, or if you know someone that you're concerned about, there's nothing wrong with making a phone call and reporting it. Um, there's something wrong with reaching out as well. Our voices, our social media pages, the messages come right to the members and co-chairs. So, you know, if there's something that you're worried about, you can always reach out as well. Victim services is another excellent, excellent resource in our our region, being the region of Waterloo, of course. Another thing is, personally, um, doing doing the advocacy work that I that I'm involved in, I. I Blasted on my personal pages as well, and this will result in sometimes uh, people within you know my more personal circle uh, reaching out, and I have had individuals reach out, um, and knowing that when you're a person that someone's reaching out to, to not have unrealistic expectations of that person. So if someone's reaching out to me and they're concerned that maybe they're in a situation that is actually violent or could turn turn into, you know, a death or even femicide. Letting them know that you can be there for them, but they don't owe you anything. So if they then decide to stay with their partner, um, letting go of your bias, because it already is such a shameful thing to go through and to admit, and it takes a lot to finally reach out. And keeping in mind that it takes seven times to successfully leave, Usually, <laughs> um, if they decide to go back to that person, you don't want to be a negative thing for them. So, if if they do need to reach out again, that they can do so. So, knowing that when you are a person of support, that you do not put on unreasonable expectations from the individual. If that, I hope that makes sense. How I explain that.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for sharing a bit about your story and yourself and the Voices group today. I really appreciate it. And I I think it makes a really big difference for survivors to hear from other survivors and it, it can really go a long way. So thank you so much for being here today. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter, and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.